There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, what's up, everybody? This week on Catch and Shoot 2.0, the Bucks now have the upper hand in the NBA Finals. Can they finish off the Suns and win their first title in 50 years? We discuss that and more with someone who's calling all the action on the court. But first, Darlene, let's get to it. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo fellas and with that welcome to catch and shoot 2.0 i am aaron berlin alongside my partner he is the one he is the only his name is otto strong otto what's going on hey man it's all good i i gotta tell you i like i like myself some disney i'm, I'm a oh, theme yeah? park i like the theme parks i like disney world disneyland all of them but i don't think i'm enjoying any having enjoyed any ride as much as these nba finals <laughs> i mean it feels like we're up we're we're down. We're side. We're 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 all over the place, and and it's I mean it's from from you know the the two zero lead to the two zero comeback to the foul at the end of game four. I mean I, you know with, with Devin and, and uh, <laughs> then, they, then game five they jump out to a huge lead and then not and then they come back. I it I, I think it's been great theater. It, was, it's you know, it's been one of the better NBA finals that I can remember <clears throat> in the last few years. I, I mean probably since the Cavs 3-0 comeback against the Warriors, right? Like, that's how good these NBA finals have been. But it's been mostly, you know, there were asterisks with that Warriors and Cavs finals because you had Draymond getting suspended. You had the technical foul that a lot of people thought shouldn't have happened. But this feels almost more like once the Bucks got this train rolling, there was nothing that was going to stop them. It's, yeah, it certainly feels that way. I mean, I kind of, I'm kind of curious, like, after 2-0, we, we, you know, we, we were kind of starting to engrave. <laughs> we I was going to say, we, we, were, we were talking about how quickly the Suns could close this out. Not as if yeah, the Bucks yeah. had any chance of coming back because those first two games, and my apologies, I misspoke. It was 3-1, not 3-0. You know, little things. But anyway, you know, it really felt like that the, um, that the Suns had kind of started to really build a lead that was insurmountable at this point. Yeah, I mean, that is true, but we've also seen a Bucks team go down 2-0, and they look worse doing it, you know, in, in, uh, against, against Brooklyn is what, the, one I'm, the one I'm thinking. But so, yeah, I guess, I, you know, what have we learned? Probably nothing, because we'll, we'll be right back if the, if the Suns somehow take, take, uh, take game six. You know, it's like, okay, well, the Suns have got the momentum, and they're going to close it out at home. Like, like the Bucks could never win a road game in a game seven. Hmm, where have we seen that before? Never mind. But, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying. It's like we, we, we constantly – yeah, we're, like I said, we're just riding. We're on this ride. Who have you been more impressed with, Drew Holiday or Giannis? Uh, look, I, it would be easy to say Giannis because you know the injury and 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 yeah. uh, you know it, it feels like one. It feels like one millimeter more 
I mean, I'm no doctor, no scientist, so, so, you know, write me and tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about, but it feels like one millimeter more on the inversion of the knee would have been like, uh, whatever, you know, there's a limit at which the knee can withstand and then it's like, you know, just shredded. It feels like he was like at that point. Um, but having said that, you know, Drew is just kind of like showing up out of nowhere. I mean, it's just yeah. like. He, um, he's given just, them everything when they made that trade over the summer that they thought that he would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like you know, Giannis, Giannis is being, and, and this is not to take anything away from me. You know, he's, he's the MVP. He should be the MVP. But, but, you know, Drew has just given them such a, a lift. And obviously, you know, without him, you know, this, this, this all doesn't happen. Um, I mean, you could say the same thing on maybe on, on, on a lesser scale, perhaps for, for Chris Middleton. And it, you know, it, it just feels like they're, they're, you know, they're playing a, a, a team game. You, you don't get the sense that there's any, you know, ego, the ball needs to, you know, hit me first. I mean, it's like zero. That, that is just none of that. That's, that's, you know, so, I mean, on, on the, on the flip side, like where do you think if the, if the Suns lose, what, what do you think the conversation is like in the Phoenix locker room? It's that their entire style changed, right? I mean, for, for people who are listening to this, we taped an interview with Mark Kestestra that's coming up. And I thought he really uh, put it into context of where the Suns have struggled most. And part of that is because Devin Booker has been a little bit maybe too shot happy the last few games. And they've gotten away from some of the principles that made them successful in game one and two. Now, now part of that is the Bucks offensively in game five we're just on fire, right? Like it's, it's tough to beat a team that's shooting that well. And you know, there's the old saying, right? You look great when you make shots, you look bad when you don't. And the Bucks were hitting shots at night and that's kind of just how it is. And, you know, Mike Budenholzer has talked pretty much for the last few months about how they just need to start hitting shots. And it's happened in the last few games for the Suns, I, I don't know if there's a lot that needs to change besides the fact that they have to find a way to get DeAndre Ayton involved. They have to find a way to be successful in that high pick and roll that they run so well that has been their bread and butter. And then they need to find Booker opportunities to where he's not having to be a high volume shooter every single night, right? Like that's, that's when it works and they're in their best flow. But, you know, I mean, I would say going into these NBA finals, I felt as if the Bucks were the better team. And I've always said that I do think that talent wins out more times than not. And the better team over the course of a seven game series wins out 90% of the time. And it's just so happened to be that the Bucks got down 2-0 and they've reeled off three straight and now they're on the verge. So it's very tough. It's going to be interesting to see how the Suns react in game six. I don't, I'm not saying it's over because like you said, these NBA finals have been a wild ride and we're not done yet. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Suns just got to get back to being the Suns and it'll be tougher to do in Milwaukee, but you want to talk a little more NBA finals? The Bucks are on the cusp of winning their first NBA championship since 1971 after winning game five of the NBA finals in exciting fashion to talk about that. And more is the man who's been calling all the action nationally for ESPN radio alongside John Barry and the great Doris Burke. His name is the one and only he is Mark Kestesher. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time and joining us today. Aaron, Otto, always good to be on with you guys, and I'm glad we're getting some excitement here in this series, because uh, I was asked a lot about small markets, and, you know, is anyone going to pay attention, and we're in the middle of July, but I knew once the basketball got pretty good, and once the games became, you know, one possession, two possession games, and now we've got 
you know, the, the, the sixth game of the series after a terrific game five. I hope everybody's enjoying it. So, so take us through game five because it really was, I mean, it felt like maybe not a back and forth affair, but it really felt like two separate games. You know, the Suns got out to that early lead and then the Bucks crawled their way back and won in exciting fashion. What'd you see? Yeah, that first quarter was a little bit surprising. Um, uh, Drew Holiday getting a couple of fouls early, uh, really put Milwaukee behind the eight ball. Uh, you know, everybody was performing for Phoenix, something that, you know, we talked about later in the game was it was a little, maybe a little bit too much Devin Booker, but at least early on you were getting contributions all up and down. And it just had the feel of here comes the Phoenix romp and now it's just going to be a home series the rest of the way. And I don't think anybody, any of us could have expected um, Milwaukee on the offensive end to be as proficient as they were in the second and third quarters. I think it was 71% combined shooting in the middle quarters. I mean, they were hitting everything. Holiday was great on offense. Middleton's like fading to the uh, baseline hitting shots. Uh, Giannis was too, you know, little 12 footers, one legged off bound. They were hitting everything. So you're right. It was a tale of two games. And then even Milwaukee made the comeback or uh, Phoenix made the comeback. Chris Paul, who had kind of disappeared, uh, maybe was made to disappear, uh, courtesy of the Milwaukee defense, uh, kept them in the ball game, And then we had that classic finish and the second straight big defensive iconic play of the series we had the honest block here in game four and then of course um the strip from behind on Devin Booker by Drew Holiday and then he finishes it off with the oops so that was uh that was just a that was tremendous theater it really was hard to gauge but you're right that's a good call a tale of two games hey Mark let me ask you uh, rate that block I mean we've heard the LeBron block versus the honest block what was what was your what's your take on that you know, it's funny because uh, when I was asked about it recently, I've, I've had two very different perspectives of it than, you know, if you were watching it on television. In 2016, I was the, that was my last year as studio host, and our host position was in the end zone at the Oracle, and it's coming toward me. I'm looking through the clear backboard, and so I see Andre Iguodala going up, and out of nowhere, you know, I never saw LeBron James coming. That was just a – I didn't even know who had hit it. If I had to call it, I would have had no clue because we were kind of uh, boxed out over there. And then uh, and then I had the chance to call uh, the honest block in game four, and that's a whole different experience because you're just describing everything. A lot of times I really focus so much on ball that I don't see exactly what's happening, you know, off ball. So if I'm to rate the two – I think I probably still fall on the side of the majority, which is time, score, game, and it's got to be it's got to be LeBron. LeBron but they were, but but uh, Eric Name, who uh, writes for the uh, the Athletic here in Milwaukee, I thought he had the best line when he said, "Giannis covered the alley and he covered the oop," and it's so true <laughs> because he literally pivoted, and I have no idea how he got there and got his hand up. That was a, a terrific piece of athleticism by Giannis. Where does that call rank for you? Uh, you know, it ranks high because I got it right. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, you know, I, I have to be a motor mouth at times to try, try to describe things. And, you know, sometimes your brain just lags and you miss a piece. And it's funny because when I, I dissected the play, um, I called the block and then had to recreate what was happening. Because it was Devin Booker, flips it up, blocked Giannis on the attempt, on the alley-oop attempt to Aiton. So it's kind of out of sequence. But it, to me, I, I think I got all the parts right. Um, I, I've heard it played a couple of times. You know, I feel good about it. I, I always, 
you know, I hear Mike Breen's calls during every finals that I've worked, and this is my fifth. And, you know, that's enough to make, uh, to make you feel small as an announcer because Mike is, you know, Hall of Famer. He's so terrific. So I always benchmark mine like, did mine stand up to Mike's? And I said, you know what? I think I would put mine up to Mike's any day. And his was terrific. So, um, you know, as far as all the games that I've called over the years, I, again, it's time, score, and where you are. And the finals, to have a call like that probably – ranks up there pretty high um you know maybe some of the toronto calls in 2019 um you know that was probably of the four previous series the best uh series that i've been a part of i had the tail end of the cleveland golden state series which were largely routes i think i remember uh, kevin durant hitting a last minute three-pointer kind of top of the three-point arc same spot in cleveland um, in consecutive years. And those were kind of the two highlights for me in a series that was, uh, you know, after J.R. Smith, kind of devoid of highlights. Hey, Mark, since, since we're kind of on, uh, not on ball specifically at this moment, I want to just take a minute, minute to ask you. So obviously there was no, um, the, the finals last year were a completely different experience. You look at the TV now and it seems like it's like it always was. And I'm kind of curious to get your take on um, the return and if, if the experience in the arena has, has changed at all or your perspective on what we've seen over the, these last, you know, 18 months, two years. Yeah, it does feel like, you know, we just got right back to where we were. I mean, behind the scenes, you know, there's still, you know, the protocols, you, you see people masked up on the concourse, mostly, I, I'd say <laughs> probably a little less masked up than I thought maybe it would be. That's a whole nother discussion for another time. But I think, um, for basketball fans who watch games without uh, fans there, for, for broadcasters uh, like myself who were in the bubble last year with just canned noise, uh, for broadcasters like myself who had to call it off monitor all year long. The only game I called live was the All-Star game in Atlanta until we started the conference finals. So mm -hmm. to feel that energy, and I think, you know, Phoenix was a pretty raucous crowd, but those those two big plays in Milwaukee at the end of game four was the first time I felt an arena shake. And it's mm -hmm. been a long time since I felt that. And there was, a, you know, an 18 month period where I wondered, would we ever get back to that again? And we have, I think some fan behavior maybe is a little more over the top. Maybe people just, um, you know, were tired of being in the basement watching games and are just a little over exuberant. But it is, uh, it's, it's been great to feel that again. And I'm sure every player, and I know broadcaster would tell you, you didn't realize, or if you took for granted the energy that the fans bring, you, wouldn't, you won't do that again. Because that's the completion of the broadcast for me, is, is hearing that roar. And uh, I missed it dearly. Mark, that, that's such a good point, because I think there's a lot of people in the industry who were concerned that just how, how you put it, that, you know, maybe that was going to be the new norm, that games were going to be televised, they were going to be broadcasted uh, through monitors from studios, whether it was in Charlotte, Bristol, you know, wherever, you can put it wherever. How important is that from a broadcasting standpoint to be able to tell that story like the Giannis block at the end of game five? in the arena where you can see it, you're not relying on monitors, but to really be able to tell that whole narrative of what's happening around you. How, how much of a difference does that make from a broadcasting standpoint? I think I knew beforehand, but after calling games off monitor all year, it was definitive. You just, your eyes are trained to go in certain places at certain times. And when you call it off television, you just can't. And the thing I learned as well was, 
if you took your eye off the TV monitor for even a half second, like you could miss a huge part of the game because things happen so quickly and it's two dimensional. And, you know, sometimes, you know, even though these are big 46 inch high definition screens, they still get a little blurry. And, you know, I did a baseball game off monitor. That's impossible. I, you know, trying to follow a little white ball um, on quick cuts, quick director cuts, you know, unfortunately I don't do baseball for a living because basketball is pretty static moving from side to side, almost like calling football off a monitor. So just having your eyes be able to go where they need to go. Um, I think in that LeBron chase down block, just to bring it back to that, that would be a tough call because your peripheral vision, you're seeing LeBron just off your left eye while you're watching Iguodala make his way to the basket. Um, and that would have been a really tough call off of monitor. But just looking at coaches, um, officials, being able to hear, and we're up, which you know we're, we've been very spoiled at ESPN Radio. We've always been courtside. So even being up in the stadium, you hear a whistle, you can't quite tell if it was the baseline official or the half-line official. And that makes a big difference, too, because, you know, you know what the foul is going to be based on who calls it most of the times. So I think you're right. Telling the story uh, is so much easier when you can find it yourself without being reliant on a director who's thousands of miles away. And it also feels like the, the player is just um... – I mean, take like a Bobby Portis. It just seems like he feeds off of that so much. And you wonder, would the finals have been the same? You know, would things have scripted, been scripted the same way if, you know, if we were still in lockdown? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming no, but I, I'm guessing you know, the players are just loving, loving this. Yeah, especially Bobby. I, I, have, I never realized, uh, you know, he's become uh, the man of the hour here in Milwaukee. They just love him. They love his energy. I know the players love his energy. And look, the Miami Heat probably say the same thing last year. You know, if they had an opportunity to play true games in their home stadium, maybe it's a little different story against the Lakers. But conversely, maybe they don't make it as a five seed if they have to go, you know, through the road. So, um, but I think, I think everybody universally, I can't imagine, uh, who do doesn't want the fans in the building, and especially uh, with the fever pitch. And I can only imagine what it'll be like for game six on Tuesday. Okay, so let's go back to game five, because it, obviously the defining moments were the lob, the steal. What went right for Milwaukee, and where were they able to turn the tide in that game? Yeah, that was, that was not going well uh, uh, for them. I think the, the key was obviously getting Drew Holiday back in the first quarter even, even though Phoenix was still able to build uh, the big lead. Just the ability to, you know, pick up Chris Paul again, at, uh, you know, before half court. And, and, and as I recall in game five, early in that second quarter, I think Phoenix got a little bit off script too. You know, they were, they had been, they were jacking up some three pointers, some tough three pointers. Now they made just about every shot in the first quarter. So you figure that would, you know, regress a little bit. Um, but it, it felt like they got out of rhythm, whatever rhythm they had built to the end of the first quarter, they just started off very poorly on the offensive side. And conversely, uh, Milwaukee, Drew Holiday seemed to be the difference. And it wasn't just on the defensive end. It was, you know, a guy who went four for 20 in game four. You know, first he took it to the rim and got a shot to fall. And now he's hitting an outside jumper, and that went down. So all of a sudden, he becomes a whole different player offensively. And then they make 70% of their shots. And not all of them was bad Phoenix defense. The defense was cracking. But... Um, 
most of it was cracked because of difficult shots, fading shots to the baseline. And that uh, got them right back in the game in a hurry. But I think Phoenix just got themselves out of rhythm. And next thing you knew, that 16-point lead was completely gone. It was a brand-new ball game. And then uh, I think we were tied at halftime, right? Uh, it was it was a three-point lead at halftime for Milwaukee and, and on their way to a, a lead going into the fourth quarter. Yeah, if you uh, if you kind of – I think I went to, to like, eat up some nachos, and I came back, I'm like, what, what happened? <laughs> I know. I I had to repeat that a few times out of the air. Like, if you changed the station and came back, this is the same game. And right. uh, Milwaukee now has the lead. Right, right. So, so what is uh, – I mean – what is, what is, where does Monty go? I mean, for, 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 you know, trying to, you know, you, you're in the most unenviable position, you know, you're playing a game six on their floor and, uh, and you, the momentum is obviously on their side. So where does, where does he go to find the energy to, you know, to kind of light a fire under these guys? Not to say that they are not playing a lot of passion, but you know, what's, what's the adjustment he needs to make? I think, um, you know, and, and we're going to ask him that because I had to joke the other day. I said, we're on the adjustment of the adjustment of the adjustment. <laughs> I don't think they have to make too much because if you look at uh, what they did offensively, they shot over 50%. They shot over six, almost 70%, right, from three points. Uh, they didn't get, you know, a great whistle here, game four in Milwaukee, mm. in my opinion. Uh, they're, they're for a game that was played at the 120 point range level in game five, there weren't that many free throws. You know, it was really just a high offensive game on both ends. I think they have to imagine Milwaukee can't hit like they hit shots in game five. I got to imagine you go in with almost the same game plan. I mean, you got to have a plan B again, if Drew Holiday is going to you know, be putting up the same offense that he's doing on the defensive end. Uh, Chris Paul, I think, breaking out in the fourth quarter was a good sign because uh, we had wondered if, you know, those legs and whatever ailments he has accumulated here through this long season, especially in the postseason, if he'd finally hit the wall. And I probably would have bought that in the third quarter, but he came through with 10 points in the fourth. Um, they do have to get away from being Devin Booker-centric. You know, Booker's a great scorer, but back-to-back 40-point games and, and both losses – you know, that kind of tells a little bit of the story. So I, if they can get it back to what they did in the first, uh, you know, having Jay Crowder be an outside perimeter threat, uh, Mikhail Bridges, who's been up and down, but was up in a good way in game five, make sure he's still available. Got to get something off the bench. And I think also, you know, DeAndre Ayton, even though he was 20 and 10, you know, he goes as Chris Paul goes. So Chris has got to be able to set the tone, that high screen and roll, um, and take, uh, take advantage when Milwaukee's big. When Milwaukee goes to that small lineup with Giannis at the center and they're, always, and they're switching on defense, they were as crisp as, you know, they've been at any point in this series. So I don't know how much they have to change. Let's see if Milwaukee can stay that hot and then make an adjustment from there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and kind of on the other end of the foyer, you know, Mike Budenholzer, a lot of people had criticized him. Maybe it was last year, you know, maybe it was midway through the series of, well, they're not making adjustments through game one and two. What changed drastically the second they got back home to Milwaukee and they've gone on this three-game run? Yeah, they, they did not allow uh, Chris Paul to be comfortable. And, and they did not allow Chris Paul and Devin Booker to just dominate whatever spot they wanted to find. Uh, they overcompensated a little bit in game two and they got roughed up on those corner threes. Uh, guys were left open. So then they went to the switching defense, the smaller lineup. That took away that, that open three-pointer. Um, and, and through it all, and, and give credit, you know, to Bud on the adjustments, 
Um, Phoenix probably should have won game four. You know, they turned it over 19 times, and that, that was the death knell for them to even up this series. You know, they have a 16-point lead in, at the start of game five. Maybe it just speaks to how close this series is. I think, you know, I haven't looked at the points totals, but I know at one point it was an exact dead heat between the two, and the difference has been, you know, Phoenix didn't take care of the ball in game four. They didn't take care of a lead in game five. And Milwaukee's defense, um, that, that's where, you know, that's where Bud has lived his entire career. You know, when he started as, uh, I don't know if he was in the film room, but he was, you know, low side, you know, low sideline guy with San Antonio uh, through his uh, experience in Atlanta and here in Milwaukee. And it's been, uh, it's been the defense and making changes. And, um, you know, Bobby Portis, who disappeared two rounds ago, the last three games against Brooklyn, you know, bringing him back into the fold, trusting Pat Connaughton that he could also be a defensive threat as an offensive rebounder and a three-point guy. And Bryn Forbes, who was brought in here to be a sharpshooter and had a great series against Miami in round one, uh, lost his way. And Bud decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going in on defense. I'm going to bring in Jeff Teague, you know, who, who didn't have great numbers and, you know, committed a couple fouls against Chris Paul after Holiday went out in game five. But he, said, he thinks, you know, I just got to keep the pressure on Chris Paul. That's been priority number one. And they've been able, for the most part, to hold him down. Chris got a little loose in game four. You know, we'll see what he has, or game five, rather. We'll see what he has for game six. You, you know, Mark, and a lot of this is probably just sports radio fodder, really, because people need topics throughout the course of the day, throughout the course of a year in a playoff series, right? But uh, when, when I go back to Budenholzer, you know, some of the conversations were, especially during that Nets series, like, which, what, what, what was more important? Was it more important for Giannis's legacy, or was it more important for Budenholzer to get this team through to the finals? Do you feel like Budenholzer has cemented his spot, and maybe he's kind of alleviated some of those questions that a lot of people had about his ability to lead this Bucks team with them being one win away from a final championship? It's, you know, it's almost hard to say no when you're one win away. And, you know, even if he wins this championship, I still feel like it, and maybe it's been so tenuous for so long. And, you know, if Kevin Durant doesn't step on the three point line at the end of regulation game seven, he's probably been gone for two weeks. You know, that's, that's the amazing part of this adventure for him is, you know, he may win a championship and, you know, for not Kevin Durant wearing a size 18, uh, you know, wouldn't be here. I mean, it's amazing to think of, of those two different worlds, you know, uh, that, that could have been. And there's a love hate here. I think, you know, the fans in Milwaukee, you know, certainly uh, ride the narrative of the unyielding, uh, you know, but as far as not wanting to change or shift, you know, offensively, they, we, we've been interviewing him for a month now because we followed the Eastern Conference Finals, John Barry and myself. And even when times are tough, and, you know, they shot the three ball incredibly well during the regular season. And I haven't checked the updated stats, but they were about 33, 34% for the playoffs going into uh, game five. And it's always whenever we bring it up, it's, well, those shots are going to fall eventually. I've been hearing that for three weeks. And the same thing with Drew Holiday is, well, that offense is going to come eventually. And I guess what it says to me more than anything else is he believes in defense winning the games and the offense will come from time to time and it ebbs and flows. But that's what drives people crazy is they don't see those adjustments. And we've, we've seen them in the last three games. Uh, I would like to think a championship here, which would be his fifth, if you include the four as an assistant with San Antonio, would cement something. But 
uh, we shouldn't get caught up in that because it is the 21st century. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we've seen coaches of the year get fired like in the same year. So, so nothing's, uh, nothing's permanent. So uh, we talked about Coach Bud a little bit and his, his legacy, what it might mean for him. What would it mean for Giannis um, if, if the Bucks could finish it off? Yeah, that, I mean, uh, I don't, you know, cemented. It's for him to be able to play after what we saw in the Atlanta series in game four in Atlanta, uh, you know, knees are not supposed to bend in that direction. And anytime you've ever seen an injury like that, it's almost guaranteed to be some kind of ligament damage, if not, you know, major, major ligament damage. So the fact that that uh, MRI came back clean and the fact that he wasn't limping that much, you know, we saw him stalking the sidelines in game five and game six, you know, uh, watching as a fan, um, you know, just made you think it's amazing that he can even be upright with what happened. And then to get the news an hour before game one of the finals that he was playing was unthinkable. And then he puts together 40 point efforts, the block, um, you know, his stats are virtually returning to where they were uh, in the regular season and to win a championship on top of it. Um, and to have signed the Supermax here in Milwaukee, where he loves it here. I mean, it's a small market. Most, um, you know, big stars are looking to, you know, get to the major markets to team up with other players. And Giannis is kind of, uh, no pun intended, buck that trend. And, you know, he's going to have a long career, it feels like, here in Milwaukee to have a championship where the only guys who could say that are Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson and others. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty special for not only to be able to play, to perform, and now potentially win a title here. I'd say that's pretty good company for him to be in, too, if you yeah. get there. All right, Mark, I'm not going to ask you for your prediction because I think that would put you in a tough spot, especially because you have to, you know, play both sides of the aisle. You have Suns and Bucks fans listening to your broadcast. But looking ahead to Game 6, what do the Suns particularly have to do to uh, get this to a Game 7? And then what are some of your keys for the Bucks to close this out? Yeah, I think uh, for the Suns, shoot it like they shot it in game number five. Uh, Chris Paul's got to be a factor. I think, you know, Paul and Booker have to be the backcourt that we saw in games one and two. I mean, they, they crushed Milwaukee. So if they could do that, uh, you know, and, and keep the turnovers down low, which they did for the most part in game five, you know, we'll have a game seven on Thursday. And for Milwaukee, uh, I would say don't fall behind early, but that, that doesn't make any sense after they were down 16 after one. Uh, but they got to keep up the defensive pressure on Paul. They've got to make it hard on him. Um, I don't know how those guys, I mean, the rotations have shrunk. I mean, this is typical, right? This time of the year, the coach is only going to trust maybe seven guys, maybe seven and a half guys. And for them to go 48 minutes and be able to play the kind of defense that they do is pretty remarkable. It's going to be hard. Uh, in a series that's been so close and has felt like it was going to be an entirely home series to give Milwaukee a chance. Remember two years ago, they won the first two games against Toronto in the conference finals and then unthinkably lost four straight to Toronto. And now they have the chance to do that exactly uh, to Phoenix. Um, I, it's just, I think they're going to close it out. I know I'm not supposed to give predictions and I've been wrong on, on just about every prediction that I've made in this finals and probably any game that I've ever called. But it just felt like one team had to have that little breakthrough moment. And, and the Bucks had it, and it almost slipped away from them. It almost slipped away. Booker had the ball in his hands with a chance for the lead, and they came up with a great defensive play and a great offensive play on the other end. 
and then a great offensive rebound. So it just feels to me like they are poised to get it done in Milwaukee. I love it. And I will tell you what, if for some reason the Bucks don't get it done in game six, we'll go back and we'll take this out of the final thing just so it doesn't look <laughs> Please, bad. Yeah. <laughs> Editing is my friend because in live play-by-play broadcasting, I don't get that opportunity. So in this, in this case, take care of me. <laughs> awesome. We love it. Mark, you're one of the best in the business, man. We appreciate your time and we appreciate you doing this on the morning of game six. Thank you, Aaron. Otto, always good to be on with you guys. That was dope. You know, I love nothing more than the guys who say, I'm not going to make any predictions, and then kind of go in and make a prediction. Like, you know, I, I love Mark. We love Mark. We are all in jest here. Suns fans do not write in, do not send emails, do not text. We, you know, at, 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 and he hated the guy. You know, we're all doing our jobs here. But uh, what did you think, man? Oh, I, I, I love talking to him. You know, the so from someone who's called live action games before, um, I can completely relate to what he's talking about. You know, like when you're broadcasting a game off a monitor, you are entirely reliant on your producer, you're reliant on your camera angles. And just to hear him discuss the way that he broke down that play in his head is what makes for a great play-by-play broadcaster, right? Because you're not formulating your thought before it happens. Like that is 100% a reactionary emotional moment for a broadcaster. And I thought he nailed it. And, you know, he, he gave that idea of that he has to compare himself to Mike Breen, but they are such different mediums and they are such different formats that I thought he nailed that moment. And it's very hard to nail a moment like that because it has to be so genuine. And he did a fantastic job of it. Look, yeah, I mean, radio is is not easy. I mean, you're, you're you know, obviously you're describing the action, but but you have to do it in a way that you know, like literally paints the picture. You know, and it's, it, it's, um, it's not, you know, not the, not the easiest thing uh, to do it. Hey, I wanted to ask you, so, you know, with your experience, how would you, going back to the end of game four, that, that Devin Booker, wrap up that i mean let's just call it what it is that that he should have been tossed i mean yeah. i i realize it wouldn't wouldn't have wouldn't affected the outcome of the game but how would you i'm guessing you would have called that uh because we're we're watching it you know with age with hd we're, it's like his arm like basically came into my living room and then like you know wrapped around I th- uh, you know i think it might have been drew at that point uh holiday but it, like how, how would you have called that so in, in that moment one as a broadcaster and specifically where he's at, you know, he mentioned that he's up high, right? So not only are you trying to see what's happening with the players, but your instant moment, the second, if a whistle is blown or not blown, you're looking to where the referees are because they're telling you the story of what needs to happen. But also you can't make a judgment call in that moment because you have to allow it to play out, right? Like if I make a call that doesn't happen, then all of a sudden I have to backtrack that, right? And the listener at home saying, what the hell just happened? Like, why did this guy say that? And so, you know, my, my gut reaction in any kind of moment like that is to look to see if anything is happening from the officials and you're looking at it from like how Mark said, you know, you're looking through your peripherals, mm-hmm. your right and your left, because they're going to be the ones who tell you the story, but you're also focused on what's happening. And so I always did it as like a rule of, rule of thumb. And, you know, a lot of my broadcasting experience happened on the baseball diamond. And so you're waiting on like an ump call. You're waiting on like a strike three call. Like I can't tell you the number of times I got burned on saying that it was a strike three call 
And then the umpire has like a delayed response and goes, no, nah, nah, you get first base. And like in the back of your mind, you're like, damn it. Why did I do that? <laughs> and so like, I just, you know, it's a natural rule of thumb. Now I wait and I let it play out. And then I make that decision. And then I make that call once I know that I'm for sure. But you know, there were some interesting things and I'm going to relate this back to the baseball diamond because I always do. But, you know, we had that interesting conversation with them where I asked him about Budenholzer and specifically how the relationship was with Milwaukee fans and in that market, right? Because we've talked about this for the last few weeks that there's been a tension between Bucks fans and Budenholzer and maybe them not thinking that they're getting enough out of this team. Well, now this team is on the brink of an NBA Finals championship, right? It's the first one since, I believe, 1971, so it'd be almost 50 years Mm -hmm. since they've won a championship. And Budenholzer, if they close it out in game six, is going to be a championship coach, you know? He's won four as an assistant. It'd be his first as a finals head coach. And there's this notion that regardless of what he does, it's not going to be enough. And it reminds me so much of the situation that happened in Kansas City with the Royals and Ned Yost. You know, Ned Yost was so confined to having his bullpen set up the way that he wanted to, right? Like someone's going to pitch the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth. And if you deviated from that script at all, it's almost like he didn't know what was going on. And that drove Royals fans insane because they thought that if you just looked at the analytics, if you threw your best bullpen arm when you needed to, you were going to be successful. Or maybe you would just allow your starter when they're going well to go a little bit longer. It wouldn't tax the bullpen as much later on. But that was not how Ned Yost operated. And at the end of the or at the end of it all, you know, he got them two American League pennants. He got them to two World Series, one one, and he won with that formula. <clears throat> and so while it might have been frustrating, you know, these guys are in these positions for a reason. And I think it relates back to you know Budenholzer. He might have struggled in Game One and Two with some of the adjustments that he made on the fly, but he's gotten this team one win away now from the NBA Finals after reeling off three straight. And so sometimes. <laughs> you just, uh, you bite your, or you grit your teeth, then you bear through it. And if it gets you a championship, you deal with it, right? Yep. Yep. Well, hey, uh, I think we got a show because, you know, now that we've mentioned our, you know, our Kansas slash Kansas City reference, we're, we're, we're good. So, you know, you know we, we always have to get that one in. It's like a quota and it's like, how long can we go until I bring it all back to my hometown? But I'm sorry, sometimes there's stories that just like lean themselves to it, right? Oh, like, oh, 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 always, always. You know, and, and, and if I really wanted to draw another parallel in Kansas City, I would just say the same thing happened with Andy Reid in Philadelphia, right? Like people said Andy Reid couldn't win <laughs> right, an NFL championship. He gets to Kansas City, he gets the quarterback, he gets the player, and he does it, so. Well, there we have it. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. <laughs> Time to wrap things up this week. First, thanks to ESPN Radio's Mark Kestisher for joining us to chat about the NBA Finals. Also, thanks to our producer, Daniel Kramer, and to our editor, Kristen Woolley. Also, big ups to our king of content, our CCO, and our executive producer. His name is Bruce Bernstein. And for the rest of us here at Pure Hoops Media, here's what's coming up this week. On the Mike Wise Show, Bruce fills in for Mike as he has ESPN front office insider Bobby Marks on to talk the Suns and Bucks and other things happening around the loop. Full Court with Fisher and Kay has plenty of great college hoops talk each and every week. Monica McNutt and King McCourt have buckets, boards, and blocks every Thursday. And BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast on Friday. And Otto and I are back every Tuesday with Catch and Shoot 2.0. 
Everybody, we're getting closer to our big hope for this year, and that is that every person on the planet gets the COVID vaccine so we can finally put this pandemic to an end. But we're not there yet. So protect yourself and others by wearing a mask, washing your hands, and maintaining physical distance. And please don't forget the medical professionals and the other frontline workers who are doing their part to keep us safe. So, for my partner, Aaron Berlin, I'm Otto Strong. See you next week. Captain Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.